Hey, everybody. Welcome back to my podcast, Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. How are you? How's it going? How's it going right now in the middle of this global pandemic and the unmasking of American culture and the unmasking of um, the economic engines of our society. And I want to talk about unplugging from the machine. And I don't mean just turn off your computer. Here we are (laughs) interacting in this digital format. I want to talk about unplugging from the machine. And I was, I was, I had been thinking about some ideas uh, along these lines and what might actually be helpful right now. And my wife reminded me of this image from WALL-E, the movie, where these, where the people are in these sort of lazy boy recliners plugged into machines, tube-fed, and fed entertainment, and shipped around from place to place, alive but numb. And and she said, what about a podcast on unplugging from the machine? I was like, yep, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm, I'm thinking about. And that's, in a way, what I've been trying the last uh, few weeks. And, uh, and I, the, the word crisis, which is being well used on our news feeds and so forth, the word crisis is a medical term, according to Michael Mead, the mythologist. And it's a Greek word, and it means something like turning point, the turning point of something. That's a crisis. And it definitely right now feels like a turning point, but we're not sure sort of in what direction. And this this image of a turning point, of crisis as turning point, has been sort of provoking me lately because... I feel like in my own way, I'm coming yet to another edge in my own life. And the present crisis is saying, change your life, (laughs) change your mind, repent, uh, turn around. Um, You're at a kind of turning point and your own personal choices aren't nothing. They're something. Even though we feel totally sort of out of control and at the mercies of of a hidden virus, and at the mercies of a, of a complicated global economic system uh, rooted in certain injustices. We felt the mercy of all these things, and it feels like, what the hell is the point? And, um, and so maybe both these things are, are true. Change your life, and at times, what does it matter? Maybe that's more the nihilistic um, and dark side of the, this this crisis. And, um, but right now I'm feeling like, okay, all right, it's a turning point. And what can we turn toward? And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about unplugging from the machine in some very specific ways. I want to talk about fasting. I want to talk about solitude. I want to talk about breathing and want to talk about Sabbath, Shabbat. And, and, and in some ways I'll be preaching to myself uh, in other ways, I've tried to uh, f- uh, follow the the trail of these invitations in my own way and to turn and to take 
the crisis seriously because I think what's called for is human creativity and the human genius in a way and tremendous heart-oriented courage toward what's painful and difficult and what's possible in the middle of all this. And it's a it's like waking up. Like imagine in the movie Wally if they unplugged, if they woke up. First of all, they'd realize how fat and overburdened and overweighted they are with all this unnecessary stimulation. And they would have to begin to shake that off and put one foot in front of the other and and do their own measure of turning. So anyway, that's what I want to talk about today. And maybe by way of advertisement, in, in some ways I want this to be a little bit of a teaser because I'm offering another online class. I've offered some online classes recently, some courses, DreamWork and um, a Lent Descent course and some other things. And I want to offer another one, a short four-week class um, on the same title, Unplugging from the Machine. I want it to be practical. I want it to be helpful. So the class will involve some teaching, um, some exercises, some homework, a little bit of group interaction. Um, There will be limited spots, but it'll be a little bit bigger than I hope, then if people want to sign up, then some of my other classes like DreamWork, which I needed to keep quite small. Um, And anyway, uh, uh, check my website, kentopson.com. Click under experiences. Under that, you'll see something called Wild Soul Programs. Very simple. Click on that list of all my programs. The only upcoming one, because of all this COVID stuff, is in fact um, Unplugging from the Machine, four weeks. We will meet noon Eastern Standard Time on Sundays. And that way, I I do have a lot of people from um, Europe who listen, and and it might accommodate sometimes that work for them instead of doing the evening on Sunday. So noon Eastern Standard Time, four weeks, sign up. Spots are limited. Would love to see you there. So, um, okay. Let's start with a line from Jesus. And more and more, I'm working on a new book and I'm using a lot of biblical material. And it's not because I'm sitting down thinking I should try to work in biblical material, but it's like, it's in my psyche. It's in the collective field for that matter, but it's in my psyche. It's in my, my way of looking at things. And I keep finding myself um, relating to these mysterious, ancient, life-giving, complex, and psychologically nuanced um, symbolic stories. And anyway, a line from Jesus has been working on me lately, and, and it's quite famous. He says, what if you gained the whole world and forfeited your soul? What if you gained the whole world and forfeited your soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? He asks as a question. What can you give in exchange for your soul? What if you gained the whole world? What if you were plugged in to a machine that met all your needs and, and fed you the right nutrients to keep you alive and chose for you the what to care about, what to get caught up in emotionally? Um, what if you succeeded in your dreams and you succeeded in the eyes of your peers, and you made it, <laughs> um, and you lost your soul in the process. 
What can you give in exchange for your soul? It's, it's a haunting question. And he doesn't explain what he means by soul. And I think that's part of the genius of, of Eastern teachers in general. I mean, I generally associate Jesus with the West, but he's really an Eastern teacher. And um, some of his teachings are more like koans than anything else. And this is one of them. What, what can you give in exchange for your soul? And the word soul in Greek means psyche, or the word is psyche, I should say. And um, of course, psyche is one of the uh, Greek gods, goddesses. And, uh, and so that's an avenue worth, worth exploring. But for now, let's just take kind of the technical definition of it in as, as best we can tell from the ancient world. And that is something like the animating invisible principle of one's life, the animating invisible principle of one's life. That's kind of, those are, those are my words. I'm sort of combining some things here. Um, the word itself is probably related to breath. So you could even say the animating breath or the animating wind, the animating, what, what's blowing into your life, what's animating your life from deep within. And if that is missing, the animating uh, principle, the animating psyche, the animating wind of your life, then you're probably living something like the life of the characters on Wally, where you're plugged in and other people are deciding your tastes and interests and proclivities and, and way of being in the world, and you're just numb enough not to rock the boat. And you're just numb enough to um, to fulfill the status quo, to keep things as they should for everyone. And the psyche is the part of us that stands up from time to time and says, no, no, or knocks on the door, or assaults us with a dream, or um, drops us off in a kind of mysterious or numinous experience that we can't explain and we think what is this world and who am i and what am i doing here these are the these are the questions that psyche loves the animating spirit within us loves and it's the thing that makes us human in fact we could even say um speaking of the biblical text you know it says and god breathes on human beings and they have the breath of life. That's something like psyche. That's something like the animating spirit. And if that's gone, life is gone, which makes right now, which I said in the last podcast, this uh, call to racial justice around the image and the phrase, I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe the breath of life. I cannot breathe the breath of freedom. I cannot be myself. Um, something is choking me out. And we feel that. We feel that from our systems. We feel that uh, inside certain zip codes. And of course, our black brothers and sisters are saying, we have felt this for 400 years. And I can't breathe. And, um, and something is being stifled. And the present crisis, the present turning point is saying, Life does not have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And, or it could be better. I'm not talking about some like um, sort of fantasy, uh, utopian fantasy. 
But I'm talking about life can be more life-giving. Our systems and our, um, and our way of relating to one another and our relationship with the natural world can be more life-giving rather than uh, stifling. And with all of our glut right now um, and access to information and glut of entertainment, it's just starting to feel gross for so many of us. And the animating spirit, the psyche, the soul is knocking on the door. And we hear in the wind echoes of an ancient brown-skinned teacher named Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, really, um, saying, what if you gained the whole world? What if you had everything? What if you were the greatest country on earth? What if you lived in the right zip code and, and sent your kids to the right school? And what if you gained the whole world? What if you had a Tesla? <laughs> you know, what if you, uh, you know, what if you had it all and forfeited your soul? Denied the real animating spirit of life. What can you give in exchange for that? And so I feel like that's, um, that's a pressing question right now and one worth turning toward. And um, what, I've, what I've noticed recently, I've been, I've, been try, I've been experimenting with a few different, I guess, disciplines. And um, one of them is not letting the, my social media feed or the news dictate the entire day or dictate my emotional response or responses to the entire day which is what I do. I hand it over. I hand it over to something and someone else, often, often a corporate someone or something. Um, and I'll let them determine. I, by the way, I think it's strange. I don't know how you feel um, in terms of Black Lives Matter right now, but I think it's interesting and strange and somewhat disturbing that so many corporations are jumping on the bandwagon. And it could be that these corporations really do have in mind the best interests of the most marginalized people, or it could just be good public PR. You decide. But it makes me uncomfortable, like, um, as if they're just blown around by public opinion, too. And they're not really concerned about the bottom line. They really care for, for us, I think. Hmm. You know, what's happening? And I just think it's interesting that people on the streets and corporate America are, have the same message. How can that be? Um, something seems a little off in that scenario. Um, but anyway, my main point is, um, what would it be like if the emotional terms of my day, starting with the morning, were not dictated by... Uh, corporations and someone's Facebook rant and the ticker and the body count, the CNN body count. And I'm not saying I shouldn't know about these things or I should insulate myself and isolate myself and, and live like a hermit. I'm not really saying that. I'm saying something like handing over the emotional energy because this is what happens in a crisis, in a turning point, is that our survival strategies, our evolutionary survival strategies, which we cannot get rid of, fight, fight, freeze, rooted in fear, get activated. Nobody gets out of this. Nobody, not even Eckhart Tolle, 
I'm guessing, <laughs> is enlightened enough to ha- somehow be, you know, six inches above the instinctual self. No, the instinctual self is activated in moments of fear. And that's what's happening on the political sphere right now. It's using our most base reactivity, instinctual reactivity to further its own cause, whether you're on the right or the left. If you're on the left, you are deathly afraid of another four years of Trump. If you are on the right, you are deathly afraid of, you know, four years of socialism or whatever you want to call it, you fill in the blank. And once you're at that level, um, it's very difficult to have nuanced conversation. It's very difficult to let your guard down and say, I could be wrong and I'd like to listen to the other side. In fact, the energy, it's like the mob mentality, is contagious. And you simply uh, further back yourself into a corner, into whatever corner you're in, and it's an us versus them world. You've heard me complain about this kind of stuff on my podcast many times if you're a long-time listener. But don't think yourself to be above all this. Say, yep, I'm prone to this. And actually, watching the body count stack up activates these things. And, um, and I should know that about myself. And, and bring some level of consciousness and not to pretend to be above it. But say, this is what happens. It's just, if it's the only thing that's happening, then it's not much more than being plugged into a wall like in Wally being plugged up into the machine. And that's not a life. That's not a soul-oriented life. That's not a, a life of the animating deep self, the deep psyche, the deep breath of life with its wild imaginative creativity and its, and its own innate abilities to be self-sacrificial and serve and work for the common good and uh, respect and listen to and honor the other as a sacred being and to be in in better and healthier relationship with the wild world, which in and of itself, according to the Bible, is itself the word of God. So um, what I'm suggesting is that there are some ancient and old ways of bringing ourselves back into alignment with the animating spirit. And I want to riff on them for just a little bit. So the place to start, I think, is with a brief discussion about the Sabbath, about Shabbat. And there's something um, intriguing to me about this ancient um, imperative from the Ten Commandments. Do no regular work. Once a week, do no regular work. And, of course, when I lived in Israel, um, Israeli culture itself was oriented around the Sabbath. Even the, the great Jewish mystics say the Sabbath is more important than the Day of Atonement. That the, or here's another line, a, fam- a famous line, the the Sabbath has kept the Jewish people more than the Jewish people have kept the Sabbath. So it's really today, even the heartbeat of Jewish life, Jewish culture, Israeli life. It even spills over into the broader society, um, the Christian community, and even the Palestinians uh, to a certain extent. 
Um, their life too is ordered around this day of rest for the Israelis, depending on where they live, of course. Um, and, you know, it's very strange. It's like a big bustling city, which is what Jerusalem is, shuts down, you know. The buses don't run. The cafes are closed. Now, there, of course, there are some that are non-kosher that open on Shabbat and this kind of stuff. But for the most part, the city comes to a stop and people are outside and people are out on walks um, and candles are lit and food is made. And if you're if you're out in the countryside, you see all the soldiers trying to hitchhike home for Shabbat on Friday afternoon to get home before sundown. And certainly, at least uh, in, from my point of view, this is one of the most rewarding things about living in Israel, just the way our life was ordered, because the whole culture was ordered around this day of rest. And, and I don't want to go too far into Jewish life, Jewish culture, um, but I want, to, I want to ask some questions that I guess are around the symbol of Shabbat. Do no regular work. And ask yourself, you know, how's that going? Are, are you that sophisticated, um, that enlightened, that cultured, that non-religious, that you're above such a thing? Uh, would you say that modern life is better because we're constantly available? I put something on Facebook Marketplace yesterday, actually, and I guess I priced it low. And in the morning, I had like 20 some messages, including like, why won't you answer me? Uh, because I'm sleeping. You know, that's why I'm not going to answer you. But in our culture, we have, we treat people like they ought to be available to us at all times. And work life and home life are blurred. And social media and work and friends and family and the line is blurred. And now we mix in that uh, news content and entertainment content and the, it's like a fire hose, you know, just coming at you all the time. The tyranny of someone else's thumbs, you know, ruling your life. And, oh yeah, I can handle that. I'm, I can detach, except we can't. It's too addictive. You know, Russell Brand is right in his book, Recovery, that um, the entire culture is suffering from various kinds of addiction. By the way, great book. Definitely you should read it or listen to it on audio. Even better. His voice is amazing anyway. So, um, but, you know, 3,000 years ago, the ancient intuition, mystery, instruction from the divine from as best the jewish people could understand the divine mystery they understood if we're going to stay connected to source we have to take a break once a week that's what they were saying and let me i guess let me say it as directly as i can that's what we need right now we need a shabbat we need a sabbath we need a day of no regular work we need to unplug from the machine and the Sabbath is a way of doing so. And right now, I'm not exactly saying, you know, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, do no regular work. But I'm saying that's not a bad place to start. And, 
And more than that, from this kind of ancient intuition, that regular work takes over, or another way of saying it is the survival dance, which I've talked about before, is relentless. It never, 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 ever stops. Survive, 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 eat, 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 pay your bills, um, answer your emails, respond to coworkers, um, drive your kids to school, um, or whatever, don't drive right now, <laughs> your kids anywhere. Um, it never stops. It never stops. The demands never stop. And it is a, it's a kind of courageous act of discipline to say, I'm not going to play the game once a week. I'm going to I'm going to find a source deeper. You know, when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by whatever, the devil, Satan, the tempter, the the inner demons, whatever, he says, quoting from Deuteronomy, human beings do not live on bread alone. Human beings do not live on bread alone. Except most of us think that's exactly what human beings live on, bread alone, the work of our hands, what we can do and make and and stockpile, and protect, and um, yeah, the work of our hands. And the relentlessness of modern life only feeds that illusion. We never get to the place where we say human beings do not live on bread alone. They, in Jesus's words, they, we, um, he says, human beings do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what are the words that come from the mouth of God? Wind, and air, and soil, and sunlight, and um, and a pomegranate, and a clear stream, and the ocean, and the constellations, and the mysteries. You know, the the wonder and mystery of sheer being. You can't get close to that when all you're doing is being fed by a pipe that comes out of the wall and takes over your mind and your heart and your consciousness. And I'm not putting anyone down for this. I mean, you know, like it's part of the survival strategies. It's evolutionary that we react and that fear um, is a kind of survival trigger. And that's why once a week we have to say, no, I'm not going to do it. And I'm, I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging you. What does Shabbat look like for you right now in this moment, in this crisis, in this turning point? And, and maybe kind of spilling out from the symbol of Shabbat, I think we can say just a brief word about fasting and... Um, and solitude, and even breathing, <laughs> which are which are things that I've uh, been trying to practice, just little bits and pieces of. And see, fasting is is interesting. Of course, as you probably know, it's like the the latest health craze, and there's a lot of wisdom to it, um, resetting the metabolism and so, and, and so forth. But I'm not talking about intermittent fasting. <laughs> I'm talking about something else. And I'm not talking about restriction, like, ooh, I got a problem with chocolate. I'm going to give that up for a while. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, fast, fasting as a trans-religious, um, trans-spiritual practice, which is exactly what it is. It's in almost every, well, it's in, it's in every culture that I know of, some form of it. 
it's a consciousness shifter. Fasting is in and of itself, um, is not about restriction, but about emptying a kind of deliberate self emptying. I'm going to empty myself from the things that ordinarily fill me up and keep me occupied and take up my time and satisfy me. I'm going to empty myself and I'm going to pour out what normally fills up the glass and be an empty vessel. I'm going to dump out onto the ground all of the contents that that usually um, fill me up. So it's an act of self-emptying. Kenosis, I think it would be called in Greek, self-emptying. Um, I might be wrong about that. Kenosis, that's, that sounds right to me. So someone can look it up. Google that. Um, different than gnosis, which is knowing. Uh, in any case, and why would we do such a thing? Because how else can we feel the source of our own life? How else can we reconnect to the soul that the psyche, the, um, what did I say before? I wrote it down. Um, the animating, invisible principle of one's life. How can one connect with the animating, invisible principle of one's life if you're overflowing with stuff and noise and food and alcohol and any number of numbing agents? So Sabbath... Um, You can take a kind of Sabbath just by fasting. And, and it might be time to consider such a thing. What would a fast look like to me? Um, I was talking to, to someone the other day on the phone, and, and they were telling me about some pretty major shifts that were happening in, in their life, and... and um, and they were happy about these these shifts. Some subtle things seem to um, have some subtle shifts seem to have happened, and they f they felt more grounded, more more whole, and less anxious. And and we were talking about this and kind of celebrating it. And then they added, kind of as an aside, oh no, oh yeah, that I I I got off Twitter and and a couple of other forms of social media for for a month. I was like, oh okay, yeah, that's a fast. Um, and it seemed to, in this anecdotal case, um, have a, be directly related to their capacity to reconnect to their own depths and to a source, maybe the source of their own depths. What Ter Deschardins calls the abyss out of which I dimly feel my life emanates. How's that for a line, you know? Um... And every culture seemed to have this wisdom. There has to be a no for there to be a deeper yes. There has to be moments and times and days and seasons of self-emptying. And, um, and our culture wants nothing to do with that. It's, it's, it's bottomless in its voracious appetite for information and noise and entertainment and... Um, narcotics and and whatever you know, it's it's a gluttonous monster 
that um, works on all of our uh, works because uh, in fear and stress and anxiety, you know, stuffing your face metaphorically works or literally works. So what's a Sabbath look like to you? I told you I, I wanted to try to be practical. You know, what would it look like for you not to have a single drink for one month? And, and open yourself up to the unsettled restlessness that you're ordinarily trying to numb. And again, I'm not against drinking. You know, the Talmud says that, that uh, the one who doesn't, um, what is it? The one who, who doesn't enjoy the fruit of the vine will be punished in the life to come. <laughs> so there's a time and a place for celebration, for enjoyment, um, for shifting one's consciousness with the gifts of wine or whatever. Um, but there's, there's a, a time for the Sabbath, for Shabbat, for self-emptying, for th 30 days. And what would you do instead, you know? Um, or how about just a one-day fast? I've done some um, different kinds of fasts in, my, in, my, in the last few years. I did a four-day sort of vision fast, which I've talked about before on the Pete Holmes podcast. Um, and, you know, that's intense. <laughs> and that was in... Um, Capitol Reef in Utah with Animus Valley Institute. And it's the kind of, you know, um, I'm in a guide training program there, and this is one of the sort of the tools we encourage people to engage in when they're in certain uh, certain stage of life and have a certain amount of, of health and also um, sort of existential longing for something deeper. Vision fast is amazing. This is what Jesus does. He goes out for 40 days, you know, um, emptying, listening, um, opening oneself up to silence and to, to the mysteries and to the pressures of nature. Now you find out very quickly nature's not your buddy. You know, it's not like, um, you know, the Lion King where all the animals are it's, you know, like friendly time, you know. Actually, it's not totally true of the Lion King, but you know what I mean. Kind of the Disney version of, of nature or uh, this kind of thing. Um, it puts pressure on who, who we think we are. But, but a one-day fast, uh, um, uh, one meal fast, anything, any, or fasting for media, or fasting, you fill in the blank. I don't, I, I'm like hesitating to sort of be prescriptive because something about me trusts that you already know. You already know. And if the, if the, if that rings a bell, if fasting rings a bell, or, or Shabbat rings a bell, or solitude rings a bell, um, follow the lead. F follow the resonance, might be, to stick with the metaphor. Follow the reverberations in your own life and to a deeper yes. And, and, that I, and, and just to maybe say a word about solitude, uh, it's a strange, obviously it's a strange... Um, this crisis is, is unusual when it comes to social contact. And many of us are feeling isolated, and that's not a great feeling. And, you know, I'm at home, and, but, I, but I've, I've got kids, and I'm, I'm married, and um, I occasionally see my neighbors, you know, and we wave, and we talk, and, um, 
and I'm less isolated than other people that I know and who live alone and um, and maybe now are confined to home as office, which is a you know in some ways it's a and I you know I am too I'm I'm working from home it's sometimes it's a a sake I don't know how to say it but like a a sacred secular blurring that's the it's the wrong symbol but maybe you know what I mean it's like um, home as sacred place and work as you know survival place you know these get blurred and and it's confusing time it can feel um, isolating and and that's not and that's hard emotionally but solitude is maybe the the deeper spiritual invitation that can be said yes to here and it's the intentional act like fasting you know it's one thing to forget to eat <laughs> it's another thing to choose it it's one thing to feel isolated it's another thing to choose solitude and to say nope no more no more podcasts no more books no more advice, no more getting on the phone, no more text messages, no more playdates, no more walks, no more meet me for whatever, no more Zooms, no more, um, even, even with your spouse or your partner or your significant other or your, your kids. Nope. I choose silence. And to choose silence is to feel a bit of your own vulnerability your own impermanence, your own smallness in the world, and the wonder of such a thing. It's like the, it's, it's this kind of paradoxical gift um, to brush up against some of your, your fears of isolation and abandonment um, is to also brush against the eternal and to intentionally stay put and ask and feel, what is it like to be me? What do I think? Um, what do I feel? What's my body like? What's my breath doing? Um, what, what are my senses? Uh, how, how wide open can I make my five senses to the present? Um, and acts of solitude, again, don't have to be days alone, you know, out in the wilderness, but can be a walk around the yard, which is how I've been doing it recently. I'm going to walk around the yard. I'm not going to listen to things. I'm not going to listen to music. I'm not going to listen to podcasts. I'm not going to think and plan what I'm going to say on a podcast or in a sermon or write my book while walking. I'm just going to walk and, and breathe in and out and breathe in the trees and exchange breath with the flowers and the grasses and the summer air and um, and simply be present to the place I find myself in the world by some mystery. And when I think about it just now, wandering around my own yard, you know, in no way, in not a million years, could I have dreamed up such a life? Could I have... Uh, put together and made conscious choices um, to create just the right circumstances to end up in this part of the world um, with this kind of 
body and mind with these sensitivities and and also hang-ups, I suppose. Um, and I could have never dreamed it up, not in a million years. And that is also to feel the mystery of life and the gift of life and the impermanence of it all. I mean, one of the things about practicing solitude is that it's like courting death. And I don't mean to be a be too dark. And it's like all the news, you know, watching the body count and and this many cases and these many people died and, you know, in Kent County where I live and then, you know, in Michigan and then wherever, all, all over the place. And there's a kind of terrible uh, realization that we're all going to die. And, and, um, and death is a limiter. And death is also the thing that turns up our consciousness. Yeah, and how do I want to live? See, this is why Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. They think they're going to live forever, you know, and they get kicked out of the garden and they wake up to, to their own proclivities and their own possibility for moral failure. They wake up to, to the fact that human beings have a kind of consciousness that can choose good and evil, both. And in that, in that state, they're kicked out of the naive garden. They're kicked out of the womb where everything is perfect and all their needs are taken care of. And they're, they're east of Eden, you know, and they can't go back. And that's the place we find ourselves in. And part of that is the fact that we know from dust you came to dust you shall return. And that is the thing that makes life precious. So I don't celebrate the deaths that are happening because of the present crisis, because of the present turning point. And I also know that it's, it's like a seed of consciousness planted in the heart of all of us who are plugged into the machine. And to find moments of Shabbat, of solitude, of fasting, of breathing, is to connect I think, to the deeper sources, to the, I keep forgetting the, this line, um, to the uh, animating and invisible principle of one's life. And maybe if you're so uh, mystically inclined to the eternal, eternal source that is, to the eternal source, to the very thing that um, out of which our life springs by no choice of our own the, the abyss the divine abyss um, that brings forth um, life itself so i don't know what you heard today you know i'm i hope a hint a guess a clue an invitation and a challenge like when I say practice Shabbat, try to fast from something, choose solitude, um, choose to breathe the, the air <laughs> that sustains us consciously. I'm talking to myself. You know, I, ho I hope you know that by now. Um, I'm not a guru, you know, dispensing. I'm a practitioner. And not a very good one most of the time. So I want to thank you 
those of you who've been listening to my podcast for a while and share it, you know, share it with anybody, you know, friends or enemies, it, it helps. And, um, thank you to my Patreon supporters. Really, 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 really. I, I cannot thank you enough, especially right now. Um, in this time that you want to take a little bit of your money and say, I support this kind of work in the world and thank you. So really, um, I'm really, really grateful. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can find the link on my website or patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson. And um, it helps keep me free of free from ads and um, and that sort of stuff. So um, I want to end uh, with a reading here by Teilhard de Chardin. It's something I read before on this podcast. I don't know, five or six ago. Who knows? It's from The Divine Milieu. And... Uh, Teilhard, um, actually, I don't know a ton about Teilhard. I've sort of been introduced to his work uh, through friends and sort of reading footnotes of people that I respect. And um, But one of the things that I do know about him is that um, he was um, influenced, well, he was, he was a, a paleontologist. So the, sh- the, the reality of evolution and its massive confrontation with worldview, he was at the forefront and was integrating and absorbing um, science and, um, and the vastness of time into his very mystical um, Christian worldview. And he's a person of our times. He's a mystic for our times, really, because He's not dividing the world up into this information counts as spiritual and this information counts as, you know, science. Or he was he was an integrator, and was living in such a way, and um, so anyway, here's the here's the the passage from the divine milieu about um, descending. I took the lamp and leaving the zone of everyday occupations and relationships where everything seems clear, I went down into my inmost self. I took the lamp, and leaving the zone of everyday occupations and relationships where everything seems clear, I went down into my inmost self, to the deep abyss, whence I feel dimly that the power of action emanates. But as I moved further and further away from conventional certainties by which social life is superficially illuminated, plugged into the machine, I'm adding that, I became aware that I was losing contact with myself, with the self I knew up to that point. At each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me of whose name I was no longer sure and who no longer obeyed me. And when I had stopped my exploration because the path faded from beneath my steps, I found a bottomless abyss at my feet. And out of it came, arising I know not from where, the current which I dare to call my life. So my friends, may you have the courage in your own way to venture 
out closer to the abyss that he speaks of, to leave the zone of everyday occupations and conventional certainties and a social life that is superficially illuminated and a lazy boy where you're plugged into the machine and you're, you're fed uh, the tyranny of someone else's urgency. May you have the courage to say no, to find a Sabbath, to fast, to choose solitude, to breathe in and out as you do so, and to walk out with your feet hanging over the edge of the abyss in order to feel the current which you dare call your life emanating from the darkness. Peace.